0: Well, hey,
1: everybody, and welcome to episode 245 of the podcast, and happy Valentine's Day. My name is Carrie Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Um, my guest today is someone who has been on this podcast multiple times, and there's a good reason for it. He is Judd Wilhite. And uh, okay, quick show of hands. How many of you have been to Vegas? Uh, yeah, I've been there a couple times. Um, <laughs> it's funny when you don't gamble. It's a really interesting Uh, town to go to. But that's where Judd lives. And he talks about the two Vegases, like the Vegas sort of everybody in America and the rest of the world knows. And then the Vegas he lives in, which actually has 2 million people, most of whom he is trying to reach for Jesus. So uh, Central Church under his leadership has grown to 20,000 attenders on a weekend basis, which is just Crazy under under any circumstances. And we talk about like real life in Vegas. And then Judd, who's been in leadership there for a number of years, kind of opens up the hood and says, Hey, here are the assumptions we're looking at in ministry right now. Here's what's working. Here's what's not working. Here's some new strategies we're going to be developing to try to reach new people. And basically, it's about as it's almost like you just sit around the leadership table with Judd and say, Okay. Tell me what's going on. And he does. You're going to love this interview. It's it's fantastic. And of course, you know, it's got application for anybody who wants to reach out into the wider community. So I think you're going to love it. Uh, Judd, thanks for being back on this special day. So that's coming up today. Thank you to everybody who subscribes and everybody who uh, shares this episode. Your support means so much, as does your support of our partners on this podcast. So speaking of which, Rethink Leadership is one of the partners of this podcast, and honestly, one of the partners in my life. Uh, It is a senior leader event that I've been involved in for three years now, and we're back for a fourth year, May 1st through 2nd, just two days, in Atlanta, Georgia. So Uh, My guess, you know, with content being so available today is that you're like, I don't need more content and I get it. But you know what you need? You need friends, you need access, and you need someone you can have a conversation with. And that's how Brad Lominick and I and the team designed Rethink Leadership. Uh, Everybody sits around round tables, which I know freaks people out. They're like, I don't want to talk to people. But by the end, you're like so grateful because we only allow peers in. So this is a gathering exclusively for senior pastors campus pastors, and executive pastors. That's it. So you can kind of let your hair down, talk honestly about the stuff that you're dealing with. And when it comes to speakers, it's a TED Talk style, even interview style event. So you're not going to get like the 40 minute talk that you're not really that interested in. And if you want more, there is more. We have affinity conversations where speakers are limited to 15 minutes of content, 45 minutes of dialogue with you. It's an intimate boutique event, sells out every year. And right now, for another week, you can still get a discount on registration. Listen, it is totally worth the full price. But if you like saving money like I do, you can get $40 off a pass. So head on over to RethinkLeadership.com. And uh, man, it's going to be an incredible year. I'm so excited for it. Make sure you join us. You also, by the way, if you do this now, get a $50 credit toward any Orange curriculum. So go to RethinkLeadership.com and join me in Atlanta At the beginning of May. Also, by the way, that buys you access to the entire Orange Conference, so it's kind of a good deal. Um, Also, are you staffing, or how are you staffing your online presence? And you know what the story is for? uh, Well, you know, mega churches they have staff for that, but for ninety percent of churches, it's probably you as the lead pastor, or you as the associate, or the youth pastor because he's younger and. Uh, what happens when that happens is it's not very good. And let's be honest, you know, it's not very good yet. You can't afford more. So what do you do? So my guess is a lot of you, you you know, if you're a lead pastor, you're working on your next sermon series with your team, you've arrived on a great name. Uh, and, you know, maybe you pour your heart and soul into it, but like it needs graphics. It needs a social media presence. Like what if, more people would hear your message because you did a better job on social. I mean, that's what we're finding. The better we do on social, the better the series turns out to be in terms of people who engage with it. Uh, Well, that kind of creative work can be overwhelming for your team. So that problem is solved with ProMedia Fire, which is a creative team in the cloud of media professionals. The process is simple. You give them the name of the sermon series, they will create a custom series brand. Yeah, they even do that. Social media ads and a video trailer or commercial. They can take care of all your church media needs each month for a simple flat fee. Way less than you would pay anybody on your team. ProMedia Fire is offering a limited special discount to the listeners of this podcast. 10% off all plans for life. And if you want to buy their media bundle of unlimited graphic design and custom video services, you get 40% off. So head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry, and you can take advantage of that special offer. Well, I'm so excited to have Judd Wilhite here. We also talk about his latest book, but man, this is a fun look under the hood in real time at what's happening at Central Church in Judd's life and Judd's leadership. We even touch on you know how to renew your heart when you've been had it for a little while. I think you're going to love this conversation, my conversation with Judd Wilhite. Well, sometimes you have a guest and Judd, I think we've already been talking for 25 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it great? It's one of those <laughs> things. It's just good to catch up. Welcome back.
2: Oh, thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Uh, just, I love your podcast and uh, I really am excited to just be able to share a little bit on it. Thanks.
1: Well, I love you and you're always welcome here. You're such an encouragement. You're doing just a great work. So tell us where you are, because I haven't. I've been to your office before at Central, but you've got another office, the Holy of Holies. And this is uh, the think-
2: Holy of Holies. This is um, a, a third car garage. That's a standalone gar- standalone garage that I have converted into the home office. So uh, it's um, it's great. It serves the purpose well. And the best part is, I, I, I this is where I do a lot of content development. I can walk out of my front door and feel like I've left my house. But if I go to the church office, I'm just uh, ADD boy all over the place, Mr. Distracted, and have a really hard time uh, actually getting work done. So,
1: Well, I was saying, I don't think I'd, you'd ask me, and I don't think I've written a message in my church office in over a decade. I'm just bad at it. I can't focus. People are knocking on the door. And then when they don't, I go out, wander around, cause trouble. So
2: that's me. It's like yeah. I used to blame everybody else. And then I kind of put some rules in like they. So I, I had, uh, you know, I had the door was guarded. Like nobody could get to the door. And then you realize it's really not about them because I just go outside the door and find something to distract me. So the whole time it was about me and not about others. And it was a real convenient blame. You know, <laughs>
1: Uh, even when I work at the house, you know, my kids who are now grown, uh, you know, they're like, so dad, what is it you actually do? Because it just looks like you wander around a lot. And I'm like, you know, you're right. Maybe I don't do anything. That
2: that may be a really good point. It's, it's creative work, kids. It's creative. Yeah. Every I'm working 24-7. I'm always thinking, idea could strike me that's at dinner. Right. And then that's the idea for the day. <laughs>
1: There is a truth to the creative process in that. Where do your best ideas come from? Because you got a brand new book we'll talk about. Uh, But like when you're, do you have to sit down at a desk or like, are you, you said you've already been at the gym today, you've worked out, like where?
2: Yeah, well, it's kind of, it's a little bit all over the map, but I actually feel like some of my best ideas, especially from a leadership standpoint, come in the moment when I'm in front of a couple people and we're talking about leadership and it just comes out. I'm always grabbing my phone like, that was actually good. I need to write that down. I couldn't think of that when I needed to think of it. But when there's like either the pressure of an audience or, you know, the just the moment in a conversation where you're not trying to think of ideas, it's more stream of consciousness. It just comes out. And I feel like then I'm then I'm always just working my thumbs. Are you a verbal processor? I, apparently yeah. I am, yes. <laughs> I have the same thing
1: if I'm like probably the, the thing I have to be most, I guess, other than writing a book the thing I have to be the most precise on are what we call bottom lines for my sermons. Like, what is the main point? I'll work on it, you know, in my office for a long time. And then Gosh. I go into to a meeting at Conexus and they're like, well, what are you trying to drive at? What are you? And I'm like, no, 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 not that. No, it's kind of like, and then I'll say something and then I'm like, boom, there it is. And there it yeah, is. four yeah. hours alone in my office produced mud. And then I, I go to process that mud and there it is clearly and away we go. So yeah, the creative process is different for, for everybody. Um, I want to start here, Judd. You pastored in one of the most challenging areas of the U.S. and I, I have so much respect for what you're doing. And you've done it for a while now, for 15 years. And by the way, if uh, you guys who are listening right now are more recent subscribers to the podcast. You want to go all the way back to year one. I think the episode was in the 50s. We'll link to it. Not the 1950s, but like number 50 something. I think it's 54. Test my memory. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, Judd and I talked about transitioning and what that was like to not be the founding pastor. It's a fabulous episode. One of the best downloaded of all time. So we'll link to that. But anyway, you've been there for 15 years Neil Postman once wrote that Las Vegas is the modern city of our time because it's completely dedicated to entertainment, to pleasure, and to distraction. What are some principles you've learned from doing ministry in Vegas?
2: I think maybe the most important principle I've learned that's transferable is just the idea of speak to the broken and you'll always have an audience. Mm. Uh, and, And that speak can also... You know, you wire your ministries up for the broken, and I don't mean the down and out. It could also be the up and in. Everybody's got a fundamental brokenness, a place of pain and hurt in our lives, and when we speak to those areas, you will always have an audience because they're the 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 sea of human suffering and brokenness feels endless. You know, and uh, I feel like in Vegas, that's been one of the greatest learnings that I've grown into even more. Is really. Uh, Positioning our both our ministries and our you know our church around uh, speaking to and helping people in the broken places in their lives.
1: Well, Vegas is kind of to quote Dickens, a tale of two cities because I think you know the way a lot of people experience Vegas, it's a big highlight for them. They head into town, they go take in some entertainment, casinos, whatever um, you know, according to your flavor. And so it's this party city, but you don't minister so much to the weekend crowd or the tourist crowd. You've got all the people who actually live in Vegas. And talk about the underbelly of the city and the part of the city that you see on a regular basis.
2: Well, yeah, there are two Las Vegases. There's the tourist side, you know, 250,000 plus people coming in and out every weekend. Um, But what most people don't realize is, you know, there's there's just in the larger Las Vegas region. Uh, there's just over two million people that that live here, and they may work on or around the Strip, but outside of work and a few uh, you know moments where maybe they're going out on a date or doing something special, or they're taking friends. Most of us most of us end up on the Strip a lot, but it's usually with friends from out of town, and you know it's just a different. And we all know how to navigate the Las Vegas Boulevard without ever driving on it. You stay you know like because of traffic and everything you know all the back roads, all the ins and outs, all yeah. the all the cubbies, uh all the all the basement entrances, you know, we got all that stuff wired up if you're local. so um, that's uh that's part of part of the dynamic but yeah, a lot of people have a impression that Vegas is just this crazy town, crazy life and you know that doing church there is just crazy and and the reality is, you know, two million ple- people are everyday normal people. It's it's a relatively normal city with all the normal broken things. It's got its own unique dynamics. You know, I remember one time walking outside at three in the morning and my neighbor had just gotten off work and he's washing his car in the driveway. I'm like, it's three in the morning, dude. You know, but he's, he's out washing his car. I'm like, I'm going back to bed. I just didn't know what all that sound was.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, what were you doing up at three? A.m.? No, I'm just waking <laughs> up. It was all the going noise. On?
2: What's happening? But, you know, the, so it, there are differences, like you can get a five star steak at, at three in the morning, you know, like that, that kind of just gets in the air. Like, you know, everything's 24 seven and uh, you can always kind of have access to from food to groceries to anything. So when I'm in other cities and everything closes at 10 o'clock, I'm like, what? How did this even happen? How can they how can they
1: Or where I live and it closes at seven o'clock. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> like, how, how, can it, how can everything not be open 24 seven? so there are two las vegases and i always say hey vegas gets its reputation in min- in, my- in part not from the people that live here but from people that are from your listeners cities they get on planes they fly into vegas on the weekend they act like they would never act at home and then they fly back home you know and it was a great weekend mm-hmm. and they you can't live that way consistently so they re- could slide back into normal normal life but then i feel like we kind of get the reputation when hey that You know, that really wasn't local people that did all that
1: stuff. I know when we've talked about this before, uh, both on the podcast and also just privately one-on-one, there's a lot of heartbreak in Vegas, isn't there? If you talk to the people who are working on the strip or the people who just like Vegas is their city and that's what they do, would you say it's disproportionate amounts of addiction or loneliness or despair or it's typical America these days?
2: Well, th- Vegas is definitely the city of broken dreams. There's no doubt. And uh, one artist said, um, I don't believe it was from a faith standpoint, but his sort of metaphor for Vegas was a forgotten, uh, beat-up, stuffed doll laying by the side of the road. You know, like, that's the picture. This rag doll that's uh, that's been through it. Um, that, In many ways, I think there are some... Trends that we've seen in Vegas that probably forecast what's coming to America. You know, uh, tell me about that. Well, I just think I think, uh, for instance, years ago, and I mean over ten years ago, I remember we had a moment where we looked at all of our children's numbers and um, and our children's names, and we started comparing them with the names of husband and wife families who would bring you know their kids to church, and this was over ten years ago. We kind of crossed this line where the majority of our families did not have the same last names as either one another or their kids. And that's just like there was the 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 amount of traditional families was in the minority over a decade ago, and that's even more now. So in our world, you don't find a whole lot of people that haven't already been divorced once or twice. You know, relationships broken up, and all the pain and struggle that goes through that. Um, and I feel like that dynamic uh, you know there are um, many other communities that are a little more stable in a lot of ways as it relates to that, but it's it's slowly starting to shake and unravel.
1: what are some other trends you've either seen in the last decade or you're seeing now that you're like, huh that's different
2: yeah I, I mean I think one of the biggest I, it's not different i think I think the biggest trend if you if I sat with Christian, Jewish, um, Muslim religious leaders in the Las Vegas area—all of them will say the number one thing that we're facing in our city is related to addiction. And I, I think whether it's opioid, you know, like I, I just think there's a there's a yeah. huge underbelly in our country. We all know it's there, but it's a big problem. It's probably a much bigger problem in our churches than we realize. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have soccer moms and board members and everybody else across America's churches that are actually caught up in addictions in their own life that are really destructive to their health and moving into a very dangerous place, but nobody knows.
1: I've interviewed a lot of uh, rural pastors, multi-site, you know, going into the Midwest and the South, and it seems the smaller the town, the deeper Mm. the addictions. And, you know, obviously that's also Vegas, but yeah, I think... I wonder, you know, I, I, I'm, I'd am i be curious your take on that. Why do you think our addiction rate seems to be soaring? I mean, you have that as part of your story, you know, which you've told very publicly that breaking free and finding Christ was a huge part of your identity. But why do you think it seems to be getting worse, not, not better?
2: Well, we're definitely, you know, in Vegas, uh, we're, we're selling a lie in many ways ways that you can have your cake and eat it too and you can do it every day and not gain weight <laughs> you know? You know? But no if you do that every day you're going to be huge and get diabetes and it's not going to be pretty right <laughs> but you know like but yeah, yeah. that's the message that we're always sending and you know even even in the casinos the people that work there you would think people that work at casinos don't gamble because you would think they look around and realize okay there's only one, there's only one sort of team winning here ultimately. And that's the team that built the billion dollar casino, right? You know, like, yeah,
1: yeah, they're, they're going to win. They're going to win. But
2: but the research actually shows people that work in casinos gamble a lot. So they're around it all the time and it gets in the air and it gets normalized. And then they just start engaging in it. You know, it's surprising to me, but that's, that's human nature, and I feel like with addiction, uh, it's a way that we're trying to deal with our brokenness and our pain. I think it's probably in part a way that we're dealing with it uh, as God has been removed more and more from you know, a center focus in our culture, and we're trying to find ways to deal with that brokenness.
1: I, I would have the same diagnosis, Judd, that I think the, the more we remove God from the fabric of our everyday life and our culture— the more desperately we don't know what to do with the pain and we yeah. don't know what to do with the loneliness. Yeah, isn't that interesting? What does this, because, I mean, I follow you pretty closely and uh, I see you as a beacon of hope. I mean, you just bring hope weekend after weekend after weekend. I love what you guys are doing at Central. And you lead a, a very large church. How many locations now? It seems to keep growing.
2: Uh, every time ten, we out. are at ten, 10 different physical locations. And then we meet in, on top of that, Ten different physical prisons around the country where we have campuses. So, twenty locations all together.
1: That's incredible. And don't you have
2: one like in Australia or Hawaii or something like that? Uh, Australia, uh, Morelia, Mexico, uh, Florida, Nevada, Arizona. Yeah, That's so
1: cool. And how many people when you when you would you reach on a typical weekend these days? So
2: our kind in of person. Ad- yeah, no. Our our average live attendance, non-preacher count. I think our average for the last quarter was um, right at twenty thousand, nineteen thousand seven hundred and something. So it's some weeks it'll be, you know, in the low twenties, and then some weeks it'll be. Uh, you know, where you feel like the as you get bigger, the numbers swing even more. You know, I have a weekend where I'm like, what happened? Where'd everybody go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <I laughs> guess we, last week wasn't really
1: that good, right? Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> I, that was like my
2: best message ever. I, that's Martin Lloyd-Jones once talked about um, God's method of accountability. And he said over years at Westminster Chapel, he'd give this message and, you know, we'd walk out and say, that was the best message I've ever given. Next week is going to be record attendance, people standing outside. And the next week they'd be down. Like 20%. And he's like, what the heck? And then he'd give a message that was the, you know, he'd walk out and go, that's the worst message I've ever given. That didn't make any sense. It didn't connect. Nobody's coming back to church. And the next week they'd be up 10%. And he just said, (laughs) God did that to him for 40 years. And he finally realized this is God's method of accountability. (laughs) He realized it's not about me. It's all about God. You know, I'm I'm just on his team and uh, on his page.
1: You're preaching to a bunch of choir members right now, Uh, for sure.
2: It's easy to hear those numbers and go like, oh, you know, like, it's just easy to get false impressions about it. It doesn't matter how big your ministry is or how many locations you have or how many people attend. Uh, you are never going to find contentment and happiness in that number or that size. You have to find that in Christ and Christ alone. And you have to be grounded in who you're called to be in your identity, or you're going to be on this hamster wheel that it will never be enough.
1: So here's a question. (laughs) I want to, I want to get to preaching and communication, but um, when you have numbers like that circling 20,000, does it make it worse? Like you look back and say, oh man, when it was like 3,000, 5,000, it was so much easier. Or does it does it make it feel like the weight is just heavier now?
2: Uh, yeah, there's definitely, um, like, I don't think I could, step, I, I've been at Central 15 years and, and we've grown from around five or 6,000 up to this place from, you know, mm-hmm. it was already a large church when I got here. And, and we've turned over pretty much all of those people, the vast majority, you know, over 15 yeah. years. So yeah. It's just a different church, right? But but that whole journey, like I certainly couldn't step into what I do today, 15 years ago from from nothing. You know, like it, yeah. you, it's almost yeah. like a frog in the in the kettle, and the heat gets turned up, but you don't realize it because you're just sort of in it. And I kind of think that's God's way of preparing us. You know, I mean, I, we went through, we've been through some. It has not always been up and to the right for us. You know, it has not been the uh, kind of outreach magazine highlight reel story for us. We've had some down into the left years. Uh, We had some really rough years um, that uh, we've navigated as a leader. All of that, I think, was God preparing me and our team for to be able to shoulder what was still to come. But to answer your question, look, the bigger you are, everything gets exaggerated. So the criticism gets, there's more. Yeah, the encouragement. There's more, right? Uh, The praise. There's more. Uh, The people that that love to attack and shoot arrows. There's more. Um, The cynics. There's more. You know, like it's just everything gets exaggerated, and so um, that's just that that's real. But I think for me, I, I have that identity journey that we all go on in our in our spiritual lives, and it's a lifelong journey that continues to just be really huge from a leadership standpoint. And it doesn't matter how big you are. You can always look at a church that's bigger and say, you know, what? why aren't we like them? Why can't we be like them? Why can't we? It's just a hamster wheel you will never get off of. I, I want to grow. I want to be healthy. I want to reach more people. I want to see our impact grow for God's fame and God's glory. But I have to disassociate that as much as practical from my own identity about who I am or it's, it's crushing it and even heavier.
1: There's a quote I remember. <clears throat> this probably goes back 15 years or so. Uh, but do you remember when Ted Turner donated a billion dollars to the UN? Yeah. I remember that happened a long time ago. Anyway, he got interviewed about it. And I remember reading the piece at the time. And the question was, doesn't that make you feel like amazing? Like, you know, to have that much wealth that you can donate a billion dollars to the UN? And Ted Turner was quoted as saying, feel great. Like he says, yeah, well, you know, compared to Bill Gates, I feel like I have nothing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and it's like, that's yeah, right. that's very, very true. Uh, I'm, I'm curious and answer this as you feel comfortable, but what, um, what do the critics say? Like when you've reached so many people and you've got all those locations and you're making a positive impact, like what is the grist for their
2: mill these days? Well, I think people, you know, they can take a lot of. It just depends on who the critics are, you know. Yeah. Uh, the uh, if it's if it's the church critics that don't live in Vegas and don't walk in our world and don't sort of navigate what we're navigating. Well, the church critics, you know, uh, they, you know, they love to attack any kind of high production value in churches right. or sort of reduce. Hey, because you did a secular song or you did a you covered a song or you're, you know, somehow you're. You're less than you compromise the truth. You don't know, give the gospel. You know all this stuff. And um, I remember we had a, a we had a, a secular um, a non-believing uh, journalist come to our church, and um, he had never been there. He'd heard about it throughout the city, and he said, "You know, when he went in, he felt like you know the pastor walks out. And he goes, he looks like a roadie from for Nickelback." <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> oh, I'm like,
0: okay, He's like, Ouch. like.
2: Uh, but no, he was actually like saying, this could be really good. This is different. I, you know, this is going to be awesome. And then, you know, I did this whole message and in the end he goes, you know, I'm just so disappointed in this whole experience. And he said, uh, if you want to know pastor Judd Wilhite's opinion, dot, 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 see the Bible. And that was how he ended his article. And he, and it was, a, it, he was slamming me, but I'm like, thank you. That was the greatest backhanded compliment somebody could have ever given me. And that's what I would say to anybody, uh, even to, you know, the, the few critics that we really had, I'm just like, Hey, look under the hood and you're going to find we're a lot more than a great light show and, you know, a great special music. There's real life change and ministry going on and real discipleship happening in people's lives.
1: Yeah. I've, I've asked a lot of leaders this recently. So I want to, um, ask you but when you hear those voices and obviously that one was a backhanded compliment which is awesome but you know when you hear the critics how do you not let that get you down because I talk to so many leaders as you do Judd and they just live in that place where they can't get past those voices I'm just wondering what your self-talk is like
2: yeah, I think it's I think it's hard. My wife is is uh, is my part time therapist for some of this stuff. You know, when I really get down, I find myself in the kitchen just talking. You know, and it's really yeah. to, to to just verbalize some of this stuff. And um, but yeah, no, I think it's uh, it, it's it's a challenge. I have to regularly uh, remind myself that you know I'm here as long as God would have me be here, and I'm here to serve Him as long as He would have me serve Him. Uh, My day will come to an end and my run will come to an end. Uh, God willing, I'll finish well wherever he's got me. But I think the more I've lived with a sense of surrender, the more it's helped me. So uh, I started years ago doing a simple practice that I heard Rick Warren talk about. I mean, this was 20 something years ago. Yeah. But but I, I, I stole this and I've done it for the past 20 years. And it's really, it's a simple thing that has really helped me. When I drive off our church property, I just open my hand. And I say the same prayer. I say, God, I just give it all to you. I'm going home. <laughs> I give you like the marriages that are hurting. I give you the staff tensions that we're facing. I give you, uh, you know, the, the emails that I'm angry about. I give you, uh, all of this stuff and and it's been helpful to me. I I've been here 15 years. I hope I'm here a long time. I'm it's, I've seen it. I've seen us through the Vegas recession, the great recession, which hit Vegas particularly hard. And, a lot of things i think i've proven i don't run when it gets hard but at the same time one of the ways i've stayed is i'm 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 willing to walk whenever i sense that god says that's it we're done and so that kind of open hand acknowledges like i'm a part timer you know, I'm all in, but I'm a part-timer, God. I'm, I'm, I serve at your disposal. The critics will say what they say. I can't control that. People can say what they, and you know what? The minute that you release me from this ministry, I don't want to be in the way. I want to get out of the way for you to like advance the kingdom and take it to the next level. So I'm humble in this moment, God. I'm open. I give this to you. That's my everyday practice driving off the church property.
1: I love that. I've never heard that before. And you know what? That would be really helpful. I think I'm going to start doing that even if it's walking up the stairs from my
2: home office. Otherwise, everything in the church ministry, especially if you're a senior pastor, everything in the church ministry becomes personal. Yep. And this is where it's very toxic for our soul and it's very challenging and it is personal. But look, every staff member that leaves doesn't leave because you lack something. <laughs> you know, every right. right, every family that leaves, that's not about you're not teaching. Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, all that stuff is about them more than it's even about yeah. you and their journey and what they're going, no matter what they say. It's usually about their own stuff and their, you know, how they project that. So, but for me, I take all that stuff personally, right? (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, I failed, you know, I failed this. I I couldn't get this done or I couldn't get that done or I wasn't good enough to get this accomplished. And having that moment each day of reminding myself, hey, I'm, I'm here because I'm called and I'm commissioned. And if that call and commission ends, then that's up to the Lord and God make that clear to me. I'm willing to walk when that time comes.
1: Wow, what has kept you there for 15 years? Because that's another frequently asked question we get: is how do I know when it's time to go? So, how have you sensed that? No, I'm right in the middle of my calling right now, in good times or bad times. I'm still here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's just for me. It's it. Frankly, it's really subjective. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's in the end, it's it's kind of you know what you know. And I felt like when I came to Vegas, uh, we were called here. I remember saying to my wife, you know, we didn't unpack the boxes for the first year. (laughs) We left, (laughs) you know, because I was like, I'm probably not going to survive. But I didn't necessarily feel like I was called to survive. I just felt like I was called to go. And we both sensed that. That has never really lessened yet in my heart. Like I feel as called as ever and and it's a subjective thing. I don't really know how to answer that question, except no, that's my, a good answer. I think my prayer is like God. If if that time comes to an end, I, I just want to acknowledge that this ministry has never been about me, and it is not about me now. And someday I will be long forgotten, and nobody will even remember my name. But I pray that your name and your fame continue to come out from this place and move out to the world. And I'm, I'm willing to be your chess piece on your chessboard, God. Move me wherever you want me. I'm willing. I think that prayer uh, has been really powerful, but it hasn't ever, it's actually increased my sense of calling over the years and not lessened it. That's
1: a great prayer. That's super practical. Thanks, Judd. Lots to think about there and really, really helpful. So preaching in Vegas, communicating in Vegas, what are some principles that you've learned about communicating and preaching in the entertainment capital of America?
2: (laughs) Well, I I think the number one principle that I've learned is authenticity trumps everything. Mm. And we love to think that truth trumps everything. But if we're gonna really talk about where people are when they walk in, I'm not even sure they're looking for truth. In Vegas they're not. In Vegas they're looking for hope. That's if anybody goes to church in Vegas, it's not because, you know, their family pressures them. It's not because it's the cultural thing to do this will actually hurt your career in Vegas if you go to church and like change (laughs) your right? Like it's- Like you're going where? It's not that it's a negative thing. It's more of a neutral thing, you know, but people just don't wake up and go like, oh man, it's Sunday morning. Where are we going to go to church? That does not happen. Um, So if they go to church at all, it's because of some need they feel in their life and what they're really seeking is hope. So I say all that. I think truth is critical and very important. Oh, yeah. I, I teach the Bible every week. I hold the Bible. I actually hold a Bible in my hand still, like some old seventy-five-year-old preacher, because I, you know, that's still my foundation, right? You know, like, and I and I use it. It's almost it's like a prop. I don't need it, right? But I, I but I, it's important for me for people to see that because I I value it. So you know, yes, truth is very important, but I think authenticity is what opens people's hearts so that you can share truth with them. Authenticity, in my experience, trumps everything. And what I mean is, they're not so concerned if I have all the right answers. They're not so concerned if I uh, have it all figured out. They wanna know I'm real. And if I'll be real about my pain points and my struggle, then that will help them lower some of their barriers they've built up in their heart. And if I can, and so, so like in New York and other cities, well, that's too it's too broad of a statement because New York is really like hundreds of cities all all in one, right? Like but right in, in many cities that are more intellectually driven, where there's a higher education kind of factor, often the way to a person's heart is through their head. Mm. But that is not the case in Vegas and, and I think for much of America. You know, the way to a person's head is through their heart. And first they open their heart to you. And then they're willing to think with you and go down the road towards truth. So for me in Vegas, preaching and communicating has always been a realization that the very first challenge I have is to help people lower those defenses enough to let me into their heart. And if they will let me into their heart, even just a little bit and lean in, then I have an opportunity you know, to lead them to the gospel.
1: How do you do that?
2: Uh, so for me it's it's pretty straightforward um, almost every message I give I from the very beginning start with something out of my own life personally it always leads to uh, a discussion about a problem that we're going to be addressing but it's always personal it's my struggle with the problem I'm never the hero of my stories uh, people want to hear about your pain way more than they want to hear about your victories you know like and so I feel like the more I can just come out and be honest about like I'm teaching about the Holy Spirit this next week. And I was thinking about the Holy Spirit and how I've, yeah, I've done seminary. I've been all the classes, I've read all the books. I've, I've been all over the map. I've been super conservative. I've been Pentecostal. I've been back in the middle. I've been, you know, like I've, I think about like my journey over 30 years as a follower of Jesus. right? I, you know, I've been in a lot of environments, seen a lot of things. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit and I'm teaching on it, there's actually this moment of where I realize, like what does that really mean for me every day? Practically, and there's some things I can say. You know, I, I, almost daily I ask the Holy Spirit to fill me, and I try to be aware of the Holy Spirit's leadership, which is a subjective thing. Um, I do feel like sometimes the Holy Spirit's given me supernatural words, or you know, like key gifting things in, in specific moments. But so much of it is an absolute mystery to me, and really hard to even talk about. And That's what I'm going to say this weekend. Like to say anything else in Vegas is like, well, you lose chips. But if you will trust people enough to just be real with them, they will lean in. And so I also think that's powerful because if you create a cult, you you reap the culture you sow over time. So if you sow an authentic culture and a loving culture and a grace-oriented culture over time, that's what people are going to show you as a leader. They're going to show you grace and love and give you room to be authentic. And, uh, you know, so so I'm also trying to sow those seeds. But if I can get, so if I tell, I, so I tell a personal story, usually out of my own life, leading to a problem that we're, we're gonna be talking about and how I'm wrestling with that problem right now in my life, then, you know, that sort of sets up me to, to uh, people to kind of lean in a little bit and acknowledge, yeah, I, I go through that too. That's I relate to that. Because the most powerful illustrations we tell are the illustrations where our shared experience overlaps the listener's shared experience. And so if I can do that and lead them into a problem that we all share together and I'm in it with them, then they'll open their hearts, hopefully, uh, uh, to the power of God's word and the truth of his word to kind of help all of us.
1: Uh, That's super helpful. Do you have a line that you draw about when it's appropriate to share something and when it's like, no, that's too raw or uh, probably
2: shouldn't share that? Yeah, I do, but I I, I don't, I have a fairly uh, developed sense of where that is, but it's not like I have a rigid framework for it. But there's definitely, I think there's just, I try to put myself in the situation of saying, if I'm sitting out there, I'd love for my pastor to be real, but there's some things about my pastor I don't want to know. You know, I I don't want to know about their sex life. I don't want to know about like, right, you know, like all this. It's like, that's just too much information. And uh, if you're going down a road that bumps up against that, I'll often think, would I want to know that if I'm sitting out there or is that just too much information?
1: That's good filter. So, you recently spent uh, some time looking at your cultural and ministry assumptions, Judd, at uh, Central in Vegas, and you came up with a new and refined strategy and approach to ministry. I'd love for you to share what you learned through that exercise.
2: Well, we just went through this whole process of relooking at uh, our strategy, uh, our mission as a church. It, it's the Great Commission, you know. So, however you word it, but it's to introduce people to Jesus and help them follow Him, and, and that was that's pretty locked in. It's pretty basic, right? <laughs> you know, um, But we began to really think about like, how do we do that? And so a few things that were powerful for us is we spent quite a bit of time talking about the current assumptions that we have of the people in our culture and in our church. And once, and I'll, I'll share some of these assumptions with you, but once we came up with the list of assumptions, the changes to our strategy just flowed naturally out of it. So part of my learning in all of this is your assumptions about your church, your culture, your city, where you're called, uh, really in many ways, if you get those right, if everybody agrees, and we spend a lot of time going around the room, asking other staff members, team members, are we right, are we wrong? uh, Once you feel like those assumptions are locked in, it felt like the strategy rolled out of that. So here's some of our assumptions that helped uh, enlighten our strategy. Uh, 99% of our uh, engagement with people at Central is through the weekend experience. Hmm. That's a big assumption, but...
1: That is, because everyone's talking about trying to engage midweek, but you're saying 99% uh, I, no, we and this try is try is should to. or is?
2: Is. Yeah, I'm is. not saying we don't try. Ah. Uh, I'm not saying we don't have group life and all of that. I'm just saying 99% of the people that know who we are and interface with us their primary kind of window for that is through a weekend experience. Um, it's just an assumption, right? You know, um, here's another assumption, and this I think will be different in different areas, but I feel like this is a fairly generous one for the Las Vegas area particularly. that people will give us two to four live attendance opportunities in a month. Two to four live attendance opportunities in a month. So if they go to a small group, that's one. Uh, if they go to, we did a big, we sold out Park Theater on Las Vegas Boulevard. It's where Lady Gaga is going to do her residency and, you know, Bruno Mars performs and all this. So our worship team, Central Live, uh, you know, we sold it out a couple weeks ago and it was an amazing moment. It Ooh. was kind of like a crusade on the Las Vegas Boulevard. Saw lots of people come to faith, loved it. But the next weekend, because we did that on Wednesday, our church attendance was annihilated because people gave us that opportunity they did it it's like hey man i came i'm not came. coming back I, they'll be back in a few weeks you know like so i'm not saying again this is not a statement about this is how it should be don't please don't hear these wrong these are assumptions about how things are <laughs> you know and hmm. so 2 to 4 live attendance opportunities in a month feels very generous i think maybe 1 to 3 but But we throw out two to four as a generous. Now we have people that will come to everything we do, but that's the vast minority. You know, you're talking about ten percent of people or less uh, that come to everything. At least in our world, we're talking about the 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 majority here. Um, Another assumption is uh, we journey with people from negative. So if you think of spirituality and spiritual growth on a On a continuum that starts at negative five and then goes negative four, negative three, negative two, negative one, and then zero, and that's the cross. That's where a person comes to faith in Christ, zero, and then plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, plus five. You know, so if you see that on a continuum where plus five is like the apostle Paul, and you know, like negative five is, I don't know, um, uh, like uh, you know, a guitarist in a death metal band. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, God, and they they love to sing. Uh, songs about Satan. I don't know. So like, if you think of this sort of extreme polarizations, right? uh, Our primary audience are people that are plus three to minus three to net to plus two. Hmm. Our primary window are, and I'm not saying this should be true of every ministry or every church. Again, these are our assumptions, but there's a reason I'm giving you all these assumptions because then I'm going to tell you where they led for us. Uh, Our, uh, that's our primary window. Now we, We do some things, Uh, we do three key things for people that are plus three to plus five. We do a champions network, we do a school of ministry and leadership, and um, we have ministry partners which are volunteer staff. And basically, if you're plus three to plus five, we wanna move you into a volunteer staff role and have you serving back to the negative three to plus two kind of window. Um, So all of these, Things framed up our strategy, and so our strategy, when we when we kind of rehashed it, is very simple. It's going to sound like it was scribbled out on a napkin when I was on the, running on the treadmill. There's, <laughs> it's so basic that you'll be like, "That's it. That's the that's the simplest thing in the world. Like everybody does that. That's dumb." But this simplicity for us took hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And the process is what's so important. So our strategy became this: attend a weekend. <laughs> Um, I think it's a false assumption now that people attend church on a regular basis. Yes. I'm talking about believers.
1: yeah.
2: Um, and certainly for us, nobody's thinking when they come to faith, 70% of people in our church came to faith in our church. So they don't have a lot of church experience. Nobody's thinking, I should go to church next week. You know, <laughs> they made this yeah. spiritual commitment, but you have to teach them that this is a valuable, important thing and um, so attend the weekend. And we say attend the weekend to experience God. Invite a friend is the second part, to share hope. Uh, join a team is the third part, to make a difference. And then give generously is the fourth part, to rescue others.
1: Mm.
2: So that's it. You know, like if we can get everybody in our church to attend the weekend, to invite a friend with to come along with them, to join a team, and many of these are serving teams. Some of them are yeah. groups teams that meet in homes. But in the past, we put all this effort and energy on trying to get people to meet in homes, meet in groups in homes. And for the amount of impact it actually had, oh man, it's just so much work and effort and energy for so little actual fruit. You know, it's unbelievable.
1: Do you see greater fruit when people serve than when they're in a group?
2: We see people that serve, uh, they are more active in their church attendance. They give more faithfully, financially, significantly more than people in groups. And in general, we see that they're more engaged in the ministry. So the shift for us under this whole idea of join a team is we're going to continue to do groups. We're going to continue to offer groups ministry. But the shift is we're creating hundreds of weekend serving teams. And these teams are where people will get their sense of community. They may meet a little bit early or stay a little bit late as as a group and do things as a group, but they're serving primarily as, um, as, uh, their way of giving back. Fascinating. One I was having a conversation with a friend of mine whose daughter's in volleyball. And we were talking about how, <laughs> you know, uh, it's amazing that we have such a hard time getting people to come to our church events, you know, <laughs> midweek events and other things, but he gets a call like the day of that the volleyball team has a, a pre-game warm-up match over here, and every right. amazingly, every parent on that volleyball team can drop everything and have their kid there.
1: True,
2: and That's- so we said, "Why? Well, it's because she, their kids are needed. If their kid isn't there, the team can't play, and the whole team's depending on them being there. So we're trying to lay that thinking over church. Um, we people need to be part of a team, and they need to be needed. So."
1: Isn't that interesting because a lot of leaders when we've had this conversation are doing the opposite and they're saying you can't make people attend so we have to find other ways to engage people but you're actually going against the grain and saying no we want you to pop this up in in priority.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, we have a we have about 50,000 people that watch us online every weekend. So we have a wow. huge online Well, huge is relative, right? But I mean, it's... Yeah, no, but I mean, those those are real people. So we have a lot. So I acknowledge that a lot of people are engaging online, that that's going to be uh, even more important, you know, for how we create tools and resources for people. I think we're comfortable enough after over 10 years with an online campus of of sitting back and saying, you know, if you can, your best pathway to real life engagement and change is going to be with community. and nodding. Yep. So, you know, so we're trying to get people to slide more often into community. But H- how do you do um, that?
1: I'm curious. How, what are, what are the encouragements to get in the building and engage?
2: Yeah. I think so. For us, uh, one thing we're doing is creating a lot of teams around serving opportunities that, that, uh, work towards the weekend. And this is new. Like this is, Oh yeah, depressed. yeah. I'm not giving like I can't even. It Is might it, not yeah. work.
1: You know, we haven't got six months of data on this one. <laughs> I, I,
2: I can promise you that the data will lead us though. And if in the end we go, yeah. well, that didn't work. Look, it won't be the first time for me, Carrie. <laughs> You're like, okay, uh, let's Normie. go back to the drawing board. Let's do all this over again. New assumptions. You know, <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, but yeah, it's it's just retooling a lot of serving opportunities around yeah. our region. Continuing our groups ministry, but acknowledging that um, we can't even afford to staff it at a level of what it really needs to have, you know, 75% of people in groups or even 50% in groups in our world. Like one of our assumptions that I didn't mention is, you know, we're best when we when we uh, do ministry that is simple. And that's because for us uh, in Vegas, um, really most churches in Vegas have a an even more significant resource challenge than churches in other cities and parts of the world. And I think in the West in general, that's true. You know, in America, like on the, as you get closer to the West, it just becomes more of a challenge. Um, but certainly that's true for us. So there is this dynamic where you wanna, you wanna step out in faith, push yourself financially, but at the same time you go, we're at our best when we do what we can afford and we don't overextend ourselves.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's good. Now you've also rethought, Uh, culture recently, or you've been thinking a lot about culture. Talk about church culture and how do you create a healthy one, particularly at the scale that you're at?
2: Well, I I think for us, you know, there's a few key, key elements. Uh, I'll just try to be brief, but um, one thing for me, I I found a lot of truth in the idea of having really clear values as the leader. I I have to set the values of, of our culture. And um, you know, values in many ways uh, can can drive and shape culture in really, really uh, powerful ways. Um, I read this uh, quote by Ann Rhodes. She said, "This leaders drive the values. Values drive the behaviors. Behaviors drive the culture. Culture drives the performance." Hmm. There's a lot there, right? Like you got oh, yeah, 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 and yeah. think about that for a minute, but. I feel like there's a there's a lot of truth in this too. That yeah, we drive the values that then begin to drive the behaviors that then begin to shape the culture that then begin to shape you know your overall effectiveness, right? And so uh, for me, when there's been uh, disunity in the church, disunity on our staff, a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration, it's often because I as a leader have not been clear enough about our values and instilling them. Deeply enough into the fabric of our wow. So I've had to go back and get really clear about our values. What do we value? Uh, why are those things important? Um, we came up with nine different staff values, and um, we didn't focus so much on church wide values. We have a few of those right. that we communicate to everybody, but I feel like if our staff, if our what we call ministry partners, our, our volunteer staff, um, our interns, If that layer of people will hang on to those values and get them, then it will sort of take care of itself. It'll bleed out into the larger uh, fabric of our church. Uh, We created a yearly um, development and coaching plan. And uh, instead of a review system, we called it more of a development, a coaching plan. Okay. It's it's all built around the values. So everybody gets rated Uh on a scale of one to 10 on each of the nine values. And that's their job performance, you know. So that they're meeting every that's six pretty months. Pretty cool about
1: that. And and those values are unique to you, right? Like you didn't download something from the internet or borrow them from another church. Like in the same way that you looked at your assumptions and then the strategy, you you tried to define what Central was about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we, we spent the time kind of working through. I, I, I'll give them to you because uh, they're they're simple and they're straightforward. Oh, great!
1: Can we put and, those uh, in the show
2: notes? Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is. Uh, Yes. And my, again, the danger of seeing any other church's value is skipping the most important step, which is you doing it yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. So my ultimate to, to pastors is like, uh, like, I know you're busy. I know you're overwhelmed. And I know it's, oh yeah, we need values. We'll just cut and paste these. These look good. Uh, it's way better to just go through the process on your own. There's so much you get through the process.
1: Totally agree. Because we did that in my company. We did that at our church. And there is no substitute for you and your team, but still it's good to even get a compass bearing on what someone else has done and said, you know, oh, well that's that's what it could be like.
2: Yeah. So I and I will say before I give you these, I think we probably have too many. <laughs> and <laughs> I feel like there's a few of these that could be reframed. Uh, we also have like the principle, the value in a two two or three word statement. And then we have like a creative idea around it that goes with some things around our building and some different. Props and things, so it gets a little layered. So let me just give you the straightforward idea, not so much the creative wrapping. Totally. Uh, the first value is simply this, follow Jesus. <laughs> we should start there. The uh, value, value two is love people. Um, mm. That We uh, we invite everyone into our church family. We love them whether or not they believe or behave the same way we do. Mm. And I think that's important. You know, Dan Haglin years ago said, hey, churches for 50 years took the framework of first you behave, And then you believe, and eventually you can belong, right? Uh, You know, if you behave well enough and believe well enough, you can belong as a part of our church community. And so true, you know, we, we've flipped that whole thing upside down as a lot of churches have. And we've said, no, first you, you belong. Uh, whether you believe or not. now I'm not saying you belong to the universal church of Jesus Christ, which I believe right. is entered through faith in Jesus. Not. But you can belong as a part of our community as a human being. We have way more in common as human beings than we don't, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So like uh, you can just belong. And then we hope you'll come to a place where you believe. And then eventually you'll start to become all that God desires for you to be. But that's that sort of love, love people value. Uh, the third area is celebrate stories. That basically, our stories are our loudest instruments for sharing our purpose, so that others could be rescued. Uh, fourth area is lead yourself. Um, I'll never forget years ago, I had breakfast with this senior pastor, and I wasn't yet a senior pastor, and I was already overwhelmed as an associate pastor. And this person seemed to have it all together, and you know, they're leading all this stuff. And I remember saying, like, "How do you do it? You know, how do you keep it all together? I'm, I'm overwhelmed, you know." And I'll never forget, like, put his fork down, and he goes, "Grow up." lead yourself. If you don't lead yourself, no one else will. (laughs) He took another (laughs) bite of breakfast. And I was like, I just got slapped. I just got slapped at breakfast. That's what just happened. Wow! But I never forgot it. Like, yes, lead yourself. And so that's a huge message. Like the biggest thing that I try to teach our staff and our core leaders is if you are depleted spiritually, that is your own fault and responsibility deal with it, yes. you know?
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And no, uh, you're
1: right. You are responsible for your own spiritual growth. I couldn't agree. Yeah.
2: More. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, fifth is work as a team. Uh, sixth is always honor. So you know, honor can be distorted in different churches. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, we, we, we talk about that, right? But one of the things we try to talk about is 360 degree honor that on our staff and with our leaders, we want to honor up, honor down, and honor all around. I honor person to my left, to my right, as my team members, I honor the person below me in the org chart. I honor the person above me. And honor, I think, is healthy and thrives in a culture when it's honor all the way around. I think so often over, where it gets distorted is where leaders demand honor downline towards them, but then don't honor the people around them.
1: Never thought of it that way. All, a whole bunch of stuff just clicked.
2: That makes so much sense. Right. Because if you're not, if you're not actually showing the honor you expect to receive, right, you're just a hypocrite. Yeah, It's exactly it.
1: Or it's like, you know, the person with the most spoils wins. Right. So you're, you're at the top. So it all flows to you.
2: Yeah. Number seven, similar. Uh, and we actually have two that are very similar. This has probably been my highest personal value and that's be loyal. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, I always go back to where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And there was an expectation that as long as he's following Christ and true to his calling and not acting outside of his, uh, you know, a a morality framework and a calling framework, he expected people to follow him. And uh, I expect our team at Central to be loyal to me and loyal to one another, which means gossip of any kind is a sin towards staff gossip about one another, team gossip towards one another. You know what? Like, gossip, period, is a sin. we got to watch each other's back and protect each other. So uh, pedal to the metal. Uh, that, that's number eight, which is actually do whatever it takes.
1: <laughs> like that. Pedal to the metal. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah,
2: whatever it takes. And then and then have fun. You know, work hard, play hard, have fun. So th- those are our kind of nine values. And again, the, and we can put these in the show notes, but the important yeah, thing is isn't, isn't it isn't the values, right? It's that we went through the process.
1: And then they're owned, right? It's not like you came down from the mountain. It's like, here you go, guys. These are our values. You're, no, you're, you yeah. shared them
2: with your team. We shaped them as a team. And then we took them to the larger team to get input. And then we came back and went over them again. And then we rolled them out publicly, you know, like, because then it's, it's shared. It's a shared kind of framework. And For us, I think what was so powerful is once we created a development and coaching plan around that, once we brought clarity to those values, then we started saying things like um, no staff member should come on our team who doesn't represent this already uh, in their heart and in their life. Um, No ministry partner, kind of volunteer staff member, uh, should be asked to step on because you're kind of invited into that circle, you know, like unless they represent this heart. And as we began to, to dial it down, when people didn't represent that heart, they would be talked to. You know, they have the, you know some difficult conversations around that. It started to change the culture because it started to become really apparent. This is what we do, and this is what we don't do. And all of a sudden, there were there was a very small group of people that stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah, they just didn't fit the culture, and, and they eventually needed to transition on to where where God was leading them, and um, it became a, a re, re, revelatory kind of process for us. But once we, once we really begin to let those values sink in, and then once we started to police those values, you know, like owning them at a deep level and model those values, uh, these are values that I try to live. And by the way, when I teach these values to our church, you know, the most powerful thing you can do as a communicator is to not always get up and tell people what to do. You know, communicators, we love to get up and be like, you need to invite your friends to come to church. Listen, it's way more powerful if you get up and say, hey, this week, let me tell you about my friend John, who I've been praying for, and I saw him, and, uh, you know, it'd been a while since it's, I slipped an invitation out there, you know, and I said, hey, John, would you be willing to, to come to church with me, you know, this next weekend, we got this going on or whatever. And then, you know, John says, no, I'm, I'm busy, I got things going on, which that's actually a very powerful illustration, because that's people's experience often, right, you know, you just tell people stories of you living the values week in and week out, and you don't have to tell people what to do. They will start. They will do it. Your leadership. They'll catch it. They'll catch it. And so values, I do think they're taught, but I also think they're caught, right? It's, you know, real, if they're really going to get in the culture. They're, they're also caught. So anyway, all that stuff has been important for us to to maintain a healthy a healthy culture and to strive to protect it.
1: Well, and this is one of the reasons I just love having you on the podcast because I can't believe we're in the better part of an hour. But I don't want to let you go, Judd, without talking a little bit about your personal journey as a leader. Uh, You know as well as I do, there are some leaders listening and as valuable as all this stuff is, they're like, dude, if we were just going to sit down and have a cup of coffee, I would have to tell you I'm exhausted. And you went through a period of burnout. You've, in your brand new book, Uncaged, which I would recommend people pick up a copy, you talk about personal freedom and how God's promises have really helped you. But you've gone through periods of near burnout with the pace and the weight of ministry over this last decade and a half really feeling heavy. Can you talk to us about that, Judd? I don't want to let this time go by without, without going there.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, burnout is, uh, it's a huge issue. And, and, and every conference you go to, it usually, you know, you hear somebody talk about it, right? It's yeah, out I'm the there. burnout so, guy now, yeah, so it, I do it, the burnout it, talk. It, 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 it can mm-hmm. be a little bit cliche, but, um, you know, just so for me, uh, um, I, the thing about burnout that I found so fascinating is when you're really depleted at that level, you start to lose perspective and you don't realize how depleted you are. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to look around at how people just would crash into the wall, and their whole ministry and life would blow up. And you're like, "Bro, how could you let that happen?" <laughs> and I and I I think the truth is like, they ran out of perspective long before they ran off the road, Ooh. and so they didn't have a framework anymore. You know, to even like you don't plan that, but it just it just it. it. So for me, I uh, so
0: true,
2: I, I got to a place a few years ago where I just stopped feeling. Um, it's kind of a scary place to be, but I just, I I kind of lost my ability for a season to really feel anything. I just became numb and, um, I was watching these individuals get baptized and I was standing there and I was remembering how much I had changed. Like I I was remembering that there was a time where I would be celebrating this and high fiving everybody and, and intellectually I am (laughs) But emotionally, I'm like dead inside, like I don't even care. And that was a red flag for me. And I started to see other kind of red flags in my heart and life. And and then around this time, a few of my longer term close friends hit the wall and had affairs and blew up their marriages and, you know, like everything kind of. So I got I was scared enough to know, like, I, I have to talk to somebody about this because I don't want to do that. You know, there's too much at stake in the kingdom. There's too much stake in our ministry. It's too many people depending on me and trusting me. Um, I have to be honest. And so I, I was honest with our board of elders. I have a board and you know, I told them like I'm not sure what's happening right now in my heart and in my life, but you know, I'm I'm having a hard time feeling things and just emotionally I'm just Really, really numb. So I ended up going to Blessings Ranch. Uh, more yeah. than that, uh, Dr. John Walker uh, or or Dr. Charity Walker, uh, tremendous. Uh, both of them, uh, psychologists and counselors who who are believers who have worked with pastors and church leaders for decades now. And um, you know, he helped me pinpoint a couple things that I, that I think were were very important in my journey. One was that it's not just the pace. Of ministry. I actually don't think the pace of ministry is the problem. I think it's the weight that you carry at the pace that you run. And so if we can offload some of the emotional and spiritual weight off of our shoulders to God, I think we can run the race. <laughs> hmm. from the weight was becoming so heavy. And the weight I found out was um, there was some cynicism uh, that was growing in my heart uh, towards the church and towards others. Um, there was some frustration that was coming out. All these things were red flags. And the reality was I had about 20 years of hurts that I had slow, little hurts that I had never dealt with in ministry. <laughs> Two decades worth, you know, and I, I promise you, you know, this Carrie. like how many oh, yeah. would say that? Yep. Cause we don't deal with this stuff as pastors, right? We, we move on. No, we got, we're great.
1: We're fine. We got, it didn't really yeah. bother me.
2: You know, and, and so I had about 20 years worth of this stuff that I had never processed or dealt with. Um, people that you feel like betrayed you, people that you feel like it's always said they'd be by your side and then left your church mm. or started a church down the street or whatever. You know, like you just, just go down <laughs> the took list. People with them. You know, if yeah. you're in ministry long enough, you'll go through all of it. Don't think you won't. We all do. Uh, that's, that's my learning is <laughs> like, Oh, it's not that these were all just toxic leaders that brought this on themselves. This is just stuff that happens, you know, like it's, Mm I wish I could tell you it didn't. But, um, after, you know, 25 years, I've, I've, I've had a lot of those things, you know, happen under my watch as well and had to be humbled and navigate it. Dr. Walker walked me through a process that's worth sharing. He said, look, he said, I want you to, um, you know, I want you to write out a list of all the people that have hurt you in ministry over 25 years. And I thought, okay, you know, so that was my homework for a week. And I thought this is going to be a really long list, man. I mean, there's going to be pages and pages and pages of hurt me. And I came back and I gave him the list. I can only come up with like 10 or it's less than 10. It wasn't very many. I'll just never forget. He looked at me and he, and he laughed and I said, you know, this, this should be so many more. <laughs> I just can't think of them right now. <laughs> and he said, Judd, it's, it's always 10 or 5 or 3. And he said, the truth is what we do as leaders is over the decades, we start to project the pain a few people have caused us onto everybody else. And we start to view other people with cynicism or skepticism because we've been hurt, but we're not acknowledging all the people that have been good to us. He said, I want you to think about what this list means. He says, this means thousands of people have been good to you in ministry and only 10 of them have really hurt you. Think about that over 25 hours. It oh just my blew gosh. my ever-loving You're blowing mind. my mind it, right now. I mean, I've blew been... It my mind, you know? It, it's like, I can trust people. I can love people freely. People are mostly good. People have been... I don't mean this morally. I'm just saying like people no. in, that I've worked with in the church environment, leaders. Yeah, they frustrated me. Yeah, they, But for the most part, they've been great. And, you know, they've done what they could do. and And... I don't know. It just changed my whole attitude and perspective. Then he walked me through a process of forgiving those 10 people, talking to some of them if I needed to, letting the past be the past, acknowledging the hurt. And I'll tell you, ever since then, it's just, it's felt like freedom. So I'm still mm-hmm. running hard. We're all running hard, but I got rid of, I got rid of a 50 pound pack on my back and it, it's changed how I'm, how I'm running the race.
1: I just want to underscore that. My burnout, because I I had a similar thing and I was probably ground to, you know, more of a halt than it sounds that you were. But, you know, August of 2006 for me was uh, what we called it was grieve your losses. It's like all those losses that had piled up and there were a lot of tears. And, And if I had written a list, it probably wouldn't have been that long either, like maybe 10 names. But my goodness, that idea of just grieving that stuff in real time and even acknowledging that there's a hurt. Now, for a decade, I've been running a lot lighter and handling a lot more responsibility, but it just doesn't feel as heavy as it used to. That is yeah. such a gift. It's that a, is such a gift,
2: Judd. It's a big deal. And I, I will tell you, like, the scary thing about burnout, and I, I've heard, we've talked about this, Carrie. I know you, you've been, been down this road, but you know if you really hit the burnout wall you know there's always a chance you're never going to get put back together the same way again and i spent i went through this process of forgiveness and then um i began to really study the promises of god yeah. person devotionally for me this wasn't for a message series this wasn't this was just about me and god <laughs> you know like my own journey with god because i started thinking like What can I really hold on to here? What, where, where are you know what, where are my feet planted? And really, all we can hold on to is what God has promised us, right? And so that kind of led me to like, well, what exactly? How has has He promised us? You know, know He's forgiveness, eternal life, heaven, right? Whatever. But like, what is the real promises of God in the Bible, and how do those affect me in my life? And that's where the book Uncaged really came out of, but it came out of a lot of this process. And it it was an 18-month journey for me to, it was 18 months before I woke up on a Saturday morning, and I remember saying like, We have Saturday night services, so usually I wake up on Saturday morning, and my first thought is like, "Oh gosh, I got to get that message dialed in." You know, (laughs) I got to talk. You know, Uh, it's like, oh no, it's it's Saturday. Good. I'm yeah, you know, like that's you know my first thought is like, nobody knows what I carry on Saturday. You know, like (laughs) this is (laughs) right, whatever. No college football, you Uh, you know, but I woke up and my first thought, first time in eighteen months, was I get to go to church tonight. I get to go with my people, you know, that I'm called to lead and love. It, it was a, it, it, but it took 18 months to get there, and uh, it was a long, long journey. The promises of God became huge for me. So the book Uncaged is the top eight promises of God that have meant so much to me personally. Uh, these are not the most obscure promises in the Bible, you know. Right. You know. It's not, yeah, you, you know, did
1: find that one verse in the no, minor no, prophets no, no, it's ever okay. written about. You know, like that right. wasn't
2: my. Uh, this was just out of my own back. I started writing this book, not as a book. I just started a year-long devotional study for my own spiritual journey, really coming from kind of a scary place emotionally uh, of just feeling numb to um, this is what I'm gonna hang on to. This is what I'm gonna stake my life on. And some of these are like bumper sticker kinds of promises. You know, Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, I know the plans I have for you to give you a hope and a future. But hey, man, when you are in the darkness, That's the light you need to hang on to, that God still has a plan and a purpose, and he hasn't given up on you. But one of the things I do in the book is I explore these around the context that they landed in. So, you know, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is great, but Jeremiah twenty nine ten says for the next seventy years you're going to stay in captivity. Yeah, yeah, oh, good. So you, you put them in context. Yeah. But, you know, the context changes everything. All they would have looked around and seen disaster and anything but a hope and a future. They were exiled. They were, uh, you know, uh, out of their homeland. Jerusalem and everything had been impacted and destroyed. Those are the people God comes to and says, I have a plan for you, plan to give Mm -hmm. you a hope, future, but first, 70 years, many of you are gonna die in captivity. First, you're gonna go through all this stuff in your life and here's what you need to do, and then he outlines it. Don't dwindle away, have children, plant gardens, build homes, work jobs, you know, like, it it just tells them daily, in other words, do your daily life and follow me faithfully until I bring the hope and the future. So. That's a big part of Uncaged was me being surprised with some of these promises that we anchor our lives on as you dig into the Bible and go, oh, there's, there's a whole lot of layers here that help me understand what I really expect from God.
1: We, uh, I want to close on this. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions we carry about God, either articulated or unarticulated. And um, how have God's promises helped you realign your expectations? Like, you know, it sounds like you had a pivot point in your ministry.
2: One of the biggest shifts for me was around um, just what I think is the unifying promise of the Bible. And it is, it's not eternal life. It's not heaven as we often think of it, it as a place of no suffering or no pain. Uh, it's not forgiveness of sins. I think the overarching unifying promise of the Bible is that we can experience the presence of God. Genesis first chapters God's walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, right Then the fall happens that presence that 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 walking with that intimacy has now been impacted by sin. Then you see the tabernacle emerge you know the the presence of god moving uh you know with the tabernacle and the israelites then the temple why is the temple significant the presence of god is there Then christ dies on the cross the veil is torn and the temple that separates the holy of holy and the rest of the temple the presence of god in a unique way is in us through the holy spirit uh we the church community are the temple of the of the living god now where his presence dwells and then you get all the way to revelation chapter 20 and you know the promises. This, they will be my people and I will be their God. So forgiveness isn't the primary promise. It's how the presence of God as a relationship gets restored in our lives. Eternal life isn't the primary promise. It's the duration that we get to experience the presence of God in heaven. You know, like the gift is the presence of God. And I think for me, like realizing like one, my first chapter is, is just the presence is the promise. And we can sit in part now in our life, and ultimately in heaven. And I think that has, that in and of itself helped me reframe how I sort of saw God and His promises and what this whole thing was about. It's about me experiencing the presence of God. And the way that that really sort of took fruition in my life as a leader was this—you know—that old passage we've all quoted: "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart."
1: Of your heart, yeah.
2: But for me, it went back to the first part of that sentence. Just delight yourself in the Lord. That's really all you need to worry mm. about. The presence is the promise. And everything else then, the weight that I was carrying, uh, the unforgiveness in my heart, the more I just delighted in God and worked through that process, the more that just started to lighter and lighter and lighter. And the more I feel like my expectations were aligned with what, what the ultimate promise really is it's not that you're going to grow a big church and have a huge impact you might but you know that but the promise is the presence <laughs> you know of god in that's your life that's so
1: good and isn't that where we all started pretty much yes but yes. you forget
2: but you forget you forget right i make i make it about all this other crazy identity success stuff and you know all this stuff that um mm. just leads to frustration and discontentment
1: Oh, Judd, this is why I love having you on. This is why I love hanging out. This is so, so rich. Thank you. People are, obviously, you can get the book anywhere you buy books. But if they want to drill down a little bit deeper, where would they go? Is there a particular site?
2: Uh, they can always go to juddwillhite.com. And uh, that links up to kind of everything. It's simple. Uh, or centralonline.tv. Uh, we've got uh, Uncaged section and resources. And there's some group resources. There's some free oh, uh, small group videos. If uh, people want to go through uh, the promises of God and their group and kind of dig into some of those. So that's all available there.
1: Well, Judd, I so appreciate what you're doing. I love the way you're leading and I love that your heart keeps getting renewed. You're doing a great work in Vegas and uh, leaders. If you're not following Judd, you need to be following Judd and you need to be following not only him, but his church because we're learning a lot at Conexus these days from you guys. I'm learning a lot from you as a leader, mentor, friend. And just want to thank you so much for everything you do, Judd. I'm so grateful for you.
2: Thank you, Carrie. man. Appreciate you so much. And all that you do, it's amazing. Um, And I'm very grateful for your ministry. And thanks for letting me be a part. My pleasure.
1: Well, that was so rich. And Judd, thanks for your transparency and your honesty. Uh, If you want more, you can go to the show notes, kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 245. We also have transcripts. We are back next week with some fresh episodes. Yeah, we're going to have some fun. We're doing more than just for a week. So who's coming up? this month. Well, uh, we have got, we've been waiting a long time for this. John Orberg and I did a deep dive into theology, which is a lot of fun. Brad Lominick, Clay Scroggins, and I are here. Joel and Nina Schmidgall have got a new book all about marriage. We're going to talk about that. Kara Powell and Steve Argue, Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. Uh, I do a deep dive in the upcoming month or so with the team at Crosspoint about what is changing in a tractional church. You are not going to want to miss that. Well, and there's a whole lot more. Katie Cole, Ruth Haley Barton, Oz Guinness, Sean Cannell, all you YouTubers, uh, Tyler Reagan, Horst Schultze, who is the founder of Ritz Carlton. We're going to talk. Blake Mycoskie from Tom Shoes. Man, we got a lot coming up. So if you haven't subscribed, do so. And uh, oh yeah, back to next week. Here's a snippet of my conversation with John Ortberg.
0: Well, it is a very interesting thing. He he would write sometimes about uh, that transition from life on Earth to the next life. And one of the pictures that he would use is um, uh, somebody who is in a room and they move to the door into the next room. And while they're there, they can hear the conversation going on in the next room, but they're still aware of that room that they're in the process of leaving. And uh, that uh, Jesus is coming for them and welcoming them. And it is an interesting thing. When Dallas died, a friend of mine named Gary Black was with him in the hospital. And he said, uh, although the circumstances of Dallas's death were quite hard, that Dallas's final words were, thank you, thank you. And Gary said they were not directed towards him or anybody in the room. And so I'm not actually sure if those were Dallas's last words in this life or his first words in the next one.
1: So that's next week on the podcast. And hey, before you go, make sure that you've got a digital solution that fits your needs. Head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry. Get 10 to 40% off your media bundle, custom graphics, sermon series, artwork, all that stuff for your church, done for you, hassle-free, promediafire.com forward slash carry. Also, come join me in Atlanta for Rethink Leadership. The deadline is next week, so you don't want to miss it um, for the price going up. You can head over to rethinkleadership.com and have a premier experience where you and your team of senior leaders can grow. That's rethinkleadership.com. Hey guys, I can't wait till next week. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before.